Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, coach. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. There's the real world, and then there's the stock market world. Those are two very different animals. And that's how we could have a day like today where the Nasdaq got spanked down 0.44%. The S&P 500 backslid 0.16%, but the Dow Jones Industrial Average rallied 29 points. In anticipation of the Fed's upcoming rate cut, the first in 10 years. Allow me to set the stage. On Wednesday, Fed Chief Jay Powell will give us his read on the economy and hopefully announce a quarter-point rate cut to breathe new life into what has become a moribund business situation for many different industries. Now, I know there'll be some sticklers who say that with unemployment at this lowest level since the 1960s, it is ridiculous for the Fed to even think about cutting rates. Others like President Trump think a 25 basis point cut isn't enough. The president has endlessly tweeted that the Federal Reserve's way too tight monetary policy has been holding back the economy. Did it again today. And he's not wrong. When your interest rates are too high, your currency gets stronger versus the rest of the world. Right now, our rates are much higher than the other developed countries. So the dollar is very strong, and that makes our internationally oriented companies far less competitive. We also know it can hurt the auto industry when you have higher short-term rates and the housing industry, both of which are weak right now. Powell's no dope. To his credit, he realizes that the last rate hike in December was a rate hike too far. It shocked the confidence out of the business community and caused a mini bear market in stocks that it took six months to recover. So Powell wants to cut rates and he has all the justification he needs thanks to the uncertainty caused by, yes, the president's trade war. We know Trump's tariffs have slowed the economy. We've heard it on conference call after conference call after conference call after conference call, where executives keep complaining that the tariffs have frozen expansion. Last week, we spoke to Nick Akins. He's the CEO of American Electric Power, neutral, but the largest power transmission company in the country. And he told us about the slowdown in power consumption. It's real. It's not something that is uh, fungible or political, okay? Normally, the Fed might be reluctant to start cutting so soon after the last tightening. Because nobody likes to admit when they've made a mistake, and isn't that kind of what's happening? But Powell can just blame Trump. He doesn't have to take responsibility for the rate hike too far, and that makes it easier for him to do the right thing. Now, it's not just the tariffs. Boeing may need to halt production of the 737 MAX, and if that happens, do you know it could knock a half a percentage point off our GDP growth? Yes, that's how important Boeing is to the economy. Plus, there are tons of ailing retailers. I would mention them. Their stocks all traded at a dollar or less. We can't talk about them. But there are going to be some major, major layoffs as we get closer, maybe they make it to the holiday season, maybe they don't. In short, we look at the landscape, I think it's clear that we actually do need a rate cut. If the Fed doesn't deliver, it'll be very bad for the economy because of the confidence shock. But how about stocks? 
What does this upcoming quarter point rate cut mean for the stock market, for your portfolio? Now, if you only look at the numbers, a quarter point doesn't do too much, right? Uh, but when you look beyond the numbers, it's a very big deal. Let me tell you why. For starters, business people are going to be more gutsy about expanding their enterprises once they know the Fed is on their side. That's how it does work. They'll also be emboldened by the possibility that the strong dollar could finally start to cool down. It has been a major theme in every quarter. It's every conference call that's international is like the dollar, the dollar, the dollar, of course, the dollar. It would be gigantic win for our exporters, something that translates directly into higher earnings. More importantly, a quarter point rate cut will have a much larger impact on the market than it does on the, on the economy. That's because money managers have seen this movie before. They have what I call a playbook. It's a playbook for what to do when the Fed starts easing. You sell high growth stocks that can thrive in any economic environment. And you buy the cyclicals, the industrial companies that can deliver big earnings beat when the economy accelerates because the Fed cuts. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about the playbook. It could be wrong. Maybe a rate cut won't boost auto sales. So you shouldn't buy industrials with auto exposure like 3M or Illinois Toolworks or Lear? Maybe it won't trigger more construction. So you should avoid Caterpillar, United Rentals, or Union Pacific? But, and this is the world's biggest but, it doesn't matter right now if the playbook's wrong. Money managers know that you don't fight the Fed and you don't fight the tape, which means you don't go against the playbook that says buy every one of those stocks. What does it mean for you? Okay, last week Caterpillar reported a subpar quarter. When many people, including myself, Mia culpa, thought the numbers would come in better than feared, or BTF. It didn't work out that way, and the stock got slammed, falling from 138 to 131. However, CAT is exactly the kind of stock the playbook says you must buy it with your eyes closed because of the rate cut. And now it's making a comeback. I'm fucking changed today. So as CAT goes, by the way, so go the other industrials. CAT has more pin action than any stock I follow. How about the super growth stocks? Oh, they got pummeled again today. Something has become a common theme ever since ServiceNow and PayPal reported numbers that Wall Street didn't like. I actually thought ServiceNow delivered a good quarter. We heard from CEO John Donahoe last week on the show. He told a compelling story. Do you know, I went back over it again today. I thought maybe I missed something. I said, okay, let me just reread the transcript. Let me reread the speech. No! It was great. However, the playbook has spoken, and that's why the stock's down a quick 12 bucks. PayPal, on the other hand, actually deserves to go down. It's economy. It's the company cut guidance. But the pin action from these two has been extreme, and it's all thanks to the Fed-induced rotation. Don't believe it when people say the stocks must mean the stocks going down must mean the companies are slowing. It's not. It's the rotation speaking. So what should you do about this rotation? Honestly, while I I want you to be aware of what's going on, hence what I've just been talking about, I think it's a mistake for you to try to trade this kind of rotation if you're a home gamer. Matter of fact, I'll go go one step further. The stocks now that are going down are the highest quality companies in this this entire market. Cloudcase, Salesforce, Workday, VMware, Splunk, Twilio, Adobe. These are excellent companies, but their stocks rarely give you any kind of viable pullback. When you see a Fed-induced rotation like this one, it means you can finally buy the Cloud Kings at a discount. But remember, there's no hurry. We have to let the whole rate cut drama play out. There are always late to the party fund managers who will only figure out what I just told you after the Fed takes action on Wednesday. Maybe that's when you make your move. And the cyclicals, look, they're cheap. They might see better business. There's a cyclical scarcity out there, just not enough stocks. But you have to deal with the endless trade talks with China, and I don't necessarily think they'll be fruitful. If the negotiations blow up, that will stop the industrial rally in its tracks, regardless of the Fed. But the turbocharged growth kings, come on, they'll do fine no matter what. 
because they're riding the greatest secular trend out there, the digitization of all business. More on that later. Bottom line, you need to accept that this rotation is happening. It's what's driving these stocks. The Fed's rate cut will push money out of the cloud kings and into the industrials. But your job is not to trade around a rotation. It's to find high-quality stocks and stick with them for as long as the underlying business stays strong. So when this kind of rotation gives you a pullback in a group like the Cloud Kings, that's a long-term buying opportunity. Just remember that you can afford to take your time. Again, there is no hurry. But you have to start sometime. And as it goes on, I don't think the rotation's over. This rotation will be the best time to buy the stocks that we like so much in mad money. Let's go to Miles in Virginia. Miles! Hey, Kramer, Kramer, big, big fan of yours in the show. Thank you. Uh, quick yeah, quick shout-out to my investment team over at Christopher Newport University uh, in Virginia. My question is about Enterprise Products Partners, EPB. Uh, they've been up since announcing their dividend increase last month, but I was wondering your thoughts on them for the long haul. Um, their ex-dividend date is thrown, and they announced earnings Wednesday morning. Should I get in now, wait until after earnings, or stay out completely? I think the course could be excellent. I, I'm relying on Rusty Brazil from RBN. Here's the, uh, com. Here's the deal. This is the only one in the entire group that's got any real growth, and that's why it's up 20% and why the dividend can keep going, distribution can keep going higher. It is the company that's doing the most with the natural gas out there. All the other companies should be watching what EPD does because they're the best at it. I like the call. Ashwin in California. Ashwin. Hey, Jim. Thank you so much for taking my call. Of course. My question is on Planet Fitness, PLNT. Yes. What do you think? Uh, they have a partnership with Coles also. Look, I think... Here's the story with Planet Fitness. A lot of people feel the growth has run out. That's why they're like going to places like Kohl's. I think that's nonsense. We like Chris Rondo. We like his story. We like how he got there. We like what he's saying. As far as I'm concerned, this decline is a buying opportunity. Planet Fitness. All right. The financial world and the stock world, they're very different at times. But no matter what, you never fight the Fed and you do not fight the tape. On Man Money tonight, a red-hot stock that's up more than 80% this year, earlier today tumbled announcing a deal, but then the stock recovered. Should you be concerned about the initial reaction or the later reaction? I'm talking to CEO of Exact Sciences. We've long been fans. You get the facts. Then are the stocks of Amazon and Google telling different stories? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go off the charts to find out what the heck is happening with tech. And time to go for the gold. I've got an exclusive with the CEO of Agnico Eagle Mines. Long my favorite growth gold. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. (laughs) 
what in the world is going on with Kramer Fave Exact Sciences? It's a company behind ColorGuard. That's a non-invasive way to screen for one of the most terrible cancers, colon cancer, using a stool sample rather than a colonoscopy. This red-hot stock up more than 80% for the year. Had kind of a seesaw day, I'd say, down 16 bucks at one point, and then making up for all those losses in a fantastic late afternoon rally. Why did the stock initially get pancaked? Well, it's not that exact science is a big quarter. In fact, the company posted some really terrific numbers on this morning. Uh, on the earnings front, they lost just 30 cents. Wall Street was thinking they'd lose 56 cents. Their sales were much better than expected, up 94% year over year. That's a fabulous acceleration from the versus the previous quarter. ColorGuard now controls 5.7% of the colon cancer screening market. Management believes they can get to that to 40% long-term. Best of all, Exact Science has dramatically raised its full-year forecast. They've been guiding for 725 to 740 million. Now they're saying 800 to 810 million. That's huge. So what made the action so crazy then? It was the other big news story. Exact Science is buying Genomic Health. $2.8 billion in cash in stock. This is a company that does a different kind of cancer screening. They use DNA sequencing, something that's essential for personalized medicine. While they're not even paying a big premium, many investors seem skeptical, hence the wild trading. I think the sellers made a big mistake, and the late afternoon buyers were right. But don't take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Kevin Conroy. He's the bankable chairman and CEO of Exact Sciences. Learn more about the deal and what it means for the company's future. Yes, Mr. Conroy, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. Great to be here. Thank you so much for uh, having us on. And, um, you know, we had a great day today announcing this tremendous news. And it's really two pieces of news, as you noted. We had a tremendous quarter of growth with ColoGuard. The team really did a great job of educating physicians and patients. And we screened 415,000 people with ColoGuard. Uh, generating $200 million in revenue for the quarter. We couldn't be happier about that. And the combination with genomic health is one that we think is uh, going to really pay off in the uh, near, mid, and long term. So um, happy to talk about it today. Sure. Now, I think there's a great, you have a fabulous deck. You've always been incredibly transparent. Page nine talks about the annual total addressable market by indications. U.S. breast, international breast, U.S. prostate, other, uh, colorectal. I mean, you have got a gigantic diagnostic machine going now for one of the most terrible diseases ever known to man. Genomic Health is an incredible company. It really innovated, was the innovator in this field. And they have delivered tests that make a huge impact on how patients are treated. Their breast cancer test is a groundbreaking test, which is the standard of care for telling women with early stage breast cancer whether they will benefit from chemotherapy or not. And, um, and a prostate cancer test and a colon cancer test that helps to guide the right therapy. So we hit, there are multiple um, avenues of growth, plus they have an incredible um, commercial organization outside the U.S. And that global organization is something that is going to be incredibly helpful as these two great, strong companies come together. Now, I, I hope you, if you can talk about all of the cancer companies that I, the drug companies that are dealing with cancer that I know, their oncological portfolio almost always is boutique now. It's about targeted cancer, immunothera- immunotherapy. Isn't that genomic health sweet spot? 
It really is. If you look at the new tests that they launched in the prostate cancer space to help guide therapy to a certain class of uh, patients with prostate cancer. It, uh, genomic Health has done a tremendous job not only identifying the, the right markers to test, they've done an amazing job of developing the evidence that convinces physicians these are the right tests to order on the right patients to get those tests into guidelines and to get uh, broad insurance coverage. Um, I just can't speak highly enough for Kim Popovitz, CEO of Genomic Health and the entire team there and our team can't wait to get to work. All right, so let's talk about that prostate. Does that, uh, there's a K-score, there's the uh, PSA, and then there's the, uh, obviously, there's the biopsy. Where does that U.S. Pro- where does that $600 million in prostate uh, diagnostics come in? There are, are two different tests. One is if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, and the question is, is it aggressive? or um, is it indolent? Is it not likely to proceed? So there's an important decision, as you know, that needs to be made. Do you go to surgery or not? And do you do watchful waiting? And now there's a a test that Genomic Health has, a prostate test, it's called the Oncotype DX prostate test, that helps guide physicians and patients in that really important decision, what further uh, treatment is required. And a separate test that for a certain class of more advanced prostate cancers, whether they should go on or not go on a particular advanced therapy. Not only saving the patient, but also uh, saving the healthcare system money. Wow. I mean, I've got to tell you, when I hear about people, I hear all these Democrats talking about the health care system and how it costs too much. I don't understand why they don't sit down with you. I mean, you, what you're doing is saving the system a fortune, making money because you come in underneath. But does anyone politically ever call you and say thank you or I see you're keeping the cost down? I can say one thing. It's fun coming into work every day be, because people are, are not... Um, throwing darts at you. The people across the political spectrum are doing everything they can to help address what is the number two cancer killer, uh, or I'm sorry, the number two killer in the US in the health system is cancer. And it seems to be an area of galvanizing support across the spectrum. We can't wait to bring some of the pipeline tests that we have in development through our partnership with the Mayo Clinic across the top 15 cancers and introduce them to this tremendous commercial organization at Genomic Health, the oncology team, the global team. Uh, it's really exciting, Jim. What, what happened, do you think, today? I know Callen came out at 3.30 and said this is a good combination. But, you know, if you had not done a deal, Honestly, I think your stock would have been up $30 because of just alone what a money. Look, I want the deal. You know, I think the deal's great. But I mean, that quarter that you announced this morning was the biggest blowout of the year. Well, uh, thanks, Jim. The team did an amazing job. And we, as you know, um, we have never been focused on one quarter. We're trying to get um, 86 million Americans between the age of 50 and 85 screen for colon cancer. And the truth is, at least a third of them don't get screened. So we're about 6% um, penetrated into this large market. As uh, you know, a year ago when I was on the show, we were 3% um, uh, adopted. And 
the team is doing remarkable work to get more people screened. And the, the team at Pfizer that is our co-promotion partner, uh, we can't thank them enough for their efforts. Well, I got it. Uh, we, we're going to lever this strength, too. Well, no, I mean, look, this is a great deal. I, th- I didn't understand why the stock was down at all, frankly. Uh, it should have been up, and that's what will happen tomorrow. Kevin Conroy, Exec Sciences Chairman CEO. Thank you so much, sir. Jim, thank you. This company continues to clobber its targets, and I love this acquisition. It's fantastic. That's Kevin Conroy, who is doing such a good job at Exact Sciences. Stick with Craig. What the heck is happening with tech? On the one hand, the Nasdaq surged to a new all-time high last week, and many tech stocks, including Alphabet, the parent of Google, have exploded higher. But on the other hand, there's also been some big breakdowns, like the post-earnings sell-off in Amazon and the pummeling of the cloud kings that I talked about at the top of the show. Well, we want to decipher this action, don't we? So tonight we're going off the charts. We want to be unemotional. So we're using Carolyn Baroden to help us. She's that brilliant technician who runs the FibonaciQueen.com website. Also happens to be my colleague at RealMoney.com. Her recent track record is phenomenal, so maybe she can shed some light on a very difficult subject. Why don't we start with the daily chart of Amazon? All right, which reported, I guess you could call it an imperfect quarter last week, a revenue beat, but some people felt that the weaker earnings were an arbiter of things to come. Uh, they blamed the weakness on the expense of building out one-day shipping, although the Amazon Web Services division, I adore, was also a little bit soft. Now, given the strength in Microsoft's Azure and suddenly Google Cloud, maybe the competition's getting more fierce. I don't know. That's what people said. So what can the chart tell us? First of all, Broden says that the larger pattern here is still bullish, pointing to much higher prices down the road. Much higher. After the stock's recent pullback, she thinks you're getting a rare buying opportunity in Amazon. I couldn't agree more. In fact, Broden predicts that the current sell-off will likely terminate somewhere above Amazon's June lows. So we don't have to worry about this takeout down here, okay? She wouldn't be surprised if the pain stops this very week. Remember her methodology. She measures past swings in a stock, then runs them through the prism of Fibonacci numbers. That's a key series of ratios discovered by Leonardo Fibonacci. He's the medieval godfather of mathematics. These ratios repeat over and over and over again in nature. I want you to think snail shells, uh, pine cones, flowers. And for some crazy reason, they also tend to show up in the Charts of stocks. By doing this, Broden finds important levels where a stock is more likely to change its trajectory, especially when you see a cluster of these Fibonacci relationships in roughly the same area. Now, when it comes to Amazon, she notes that the stock has a cluster of support levels in the 1880s and 1890s. You can see all these. This is the clusters, okay? Uh, that it, remember, this is exactly where it bottomed today. If the share price can hold above this first zone, Broden believes Amazon could rebound to 2073, all right, uh, in short order. However, if the stock falls below its current floor, there are two key levels, 1853, 1866, and then another one, 1810. I like a lot of support. Again, though, she says the stock's long-term uptrend is intact, and I agree. Based on prior swings, Broden could see Amazon turning around and climbing to 2,145 or 2,252, or even 2,500 if everything goes right. Wouldn't that be something? At the moment, the stock is holding above both its long-term 200-day moving average and its short-term 50-day moving average, and boy, is that positive. It it, it held those levels even though it was pretty hideous last week. That said, before Amazon can make its way to Broden's higher price targets, she wants to see the stock's five-day exponential moving average cross above its 13-day, that's the blue and the red, 
on the same daily chart. That has not happened yet. That crossover is Fibonacci Queen's buy trigger because it tells you when a stock has gotten its groove back. So that's what we're looking at. Could happen very soon. Of course, if Amazon breaks down below Broden's last floor of support, 1810, that means she's wrong. And she says you got to throw in the towel. I think she's going to be right. Now, on the very same day that Amazon broke down, Alphabet reported a real smoking quarter. I loved it. And its stock caught fire. So what can we learn from Alphabet's daily chart? Hmm, not as pretty as Amazon's, I'll tell you that much. Okay, Broden says Alphabet remains in a bullish posture, although the stock may have gotten a little ahead of itself last week. Still, there's a lot to like here. Alphabet's made a series of higher highs. Okay. And it's trending uh, uh, above all of all of Baroden's key moving averages. At the moment, the Fibonacci queen is watching for pullbacks to give her a better entry point. We got the start of one today, all right? Uh, but I, I, ideally, she'd like to see even more weakness before she recommends buying this one. Remember, it did have it had this unbelievable move, so I totally get that. You know, people don't like to come in on top of that kind of move. Right now, Alphabet's trading at 1241. Broden thinks it needs to cool off a bit. Best case scenario, the stock uh, holds above 1,215 and then rebounds. If that happens, she thinks Alphabet could have a lot more upside. Her first meaningful price target falls in at 1,370. That's up 10% from these levels. If the stock can then clear that hurdle, she wouldn't be surprised to see it travel to 1,463 or even 1,485. If you believe in the chart, Alphabet could potentially run another 10 to 20%. Again, though, the Fibonacci cream warns you to wait for a pullback. She thinks the profit-taking will be brief, and the stock will quickly get back on track. But she's confident you'll get a better entry point than right here. I, I kind of jives with my thinking. Just like with Amazon, I got to tell you, I'm in total agreement. I, w- I went back over all her calls before I asked her about these two. She's been red hot. Remember, my travel trust owns both of these, but she has been so good that it's worth it to go with her. Finally, let's consider the broader NASDAQ 100, which is tech-heavy index that contains the 100 largest non-financial companies in the NASDAQ composite. When you look at the weekly chart, it paints a pretty positive picture. NASDAQ 100 remains in an uptrend. Broden thinks it's headed still higher. She could, she could see it going to the 8100s. And then it clears out all good to 8147. You hear about all these? I'm sorry, 8417. See, you hear what I keep saying? These levels, they could blow right through them. Maybe even 8816. She's talking again. Anywhere between a 10 and 20% return. When Broden looks at this chart, she's less concerned about price and more concerned about time. Don't forget, just as her Fibonacci method lets her identify key price levels, it also lets her identify key moments when a stock or an index is likely to change trajectory. I emphasize change because that means there's inflection. And with the NASDAQ 100, she sees a series of Fibonacci timing cycles that come due in August. Okay, so if you take a look, we're almost there. While these timing cycles don't always trigger a reversal, she sees a whole bunch of them hitting between late August and mid-September. All right, that makes it a little more cautious. If the NASDAQ 100 is going to sell off, there's a good chance that's when it will happen. Plus, Broden's also concerned about what's known as symmetry. The last big run in the NASDAQ 100, well, it lasted 34 weeks, okay? We're now in 30 weeks of an uptrend uh, in the current rally. In late August, it will be 34 weeks. Why is that a problem? Because for whatever reason, when you look at the charts, you tend to see a lot of moves that are similar in duration. That doesn't necessarily mean that this rally has an expiration date in four weeks. But when you throw in the Fibonacci time cycles coming due at the same time, you can understand why the Fibonacci queen wants to proceed with a little caution here. What would make this go from a yellow light to a red light situation? Broden's watching, again, the five-day, 13-day exponential moving average. She's watching like a hawk. If the five-day crosses below the 13-day, that's when she'll stop being bullish. 
In short, she thinks the Nasdaq 100 has more room to run for the next month. But after that, it may pay to be a little paranoid. Well, here's the bottom line. The charges interpreted by Carolyn Broden tell an encouraging story. While Amazon's still getting shelled, she thinks it can bottom, perhaps as soon as this week, and make a fabulous comeback. I agree. Alphabet's going strong, hoping for a pullback. Older movies, there's a lot more upside. And as for the broader tech uh, sector, she likes the NASDAQ 100 for now, although in four weeks' time, you may want to exercise more caution. Mike in New York. Mike! Big booyah, Professor Kramer from Staten Island, New York. Love it. Good to have you on the show again, Mike. What's up? Thank you for everything you and your team does for the everyday investors. Oh, thank you. That's why we do it. It gets hard, but we do it. We always do it. What's up? Now I want to talk about Etsy. Yeah. I think they're a solid company with a solid cash flow. They make it very easy for the buyer and the seller to do business with each other. Recently, the stock has hit a 52-week high. Should I buy or should I hold? I think Etsy's a good stock. I think that it's a great long-term situation. I don't want to be nitpicking. It was down a buck seventy-four today. You know what I say? Buy, buy some buy. now, and if it comes in, buy some later. But this is a good level to get started. I agree with you, and thank you for the kind comments. Paul in Virginia. Paul. Jim, how you doing? Booyah. Booyah. What's up? Well, uh, my son and I just started buying stocks recently, and uh, wish that had started a long time ago, but. Anyway, never too late. We're looking at some uh, crowd crowd strike. My son told me I should have bought that a few weeks ago, and I wish I would have. But anyway, uh, I bought it. I bought some shares of it, and, and it was doing pretty good. Today, it kind of took a dive, so right. I bought some more. I just I'm hoping I'm doing the right thing with it. Well, you want to leave some room? Don't get aggressive here. We're in a Nasdaq sell-off that includes that. Z-Scaler down, Kramer family fave, Okta down. These were all traded together. Got to leave some room, particularly with Okta. Okay, the charts tell an encouraging story when it comes to tech. Broden likes Amazon Alphabet and then Nasdaq 100 for now. Much more bad money hit. Is it a golden opportunity to buy some gold? I'm sitting down with the CEO of Agnico Eagle Mines to find out. Then I'm on the grind to help fuel your portfolio. Don't miss my take on Starbucks' latest round. And all your calls are rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. You know me, I'm always telling you to have some gold exposure. If only as insurance against economic turmoil or inflation. For years, that insurance just sat there. But now, 2019, gold has caught fire with the precious metal trading at its highest level in roughly six years. And I think I'm the only guy talking about it. That's not a great sign for the stock market. Typically, it suggests many investors may have one foot out the door. But it's been fantastic for the gold miners. Take a look at Agnico Eagle Mines. That's AEM, which operates in Canada, Mexico, and Finland, with new mines under development in the U.S. and Sweden. After bottling at $32 and change last September, Agnico Eagle has soared higher, climbing to $54 and changes of today. Dude, that's one of the highest levels it's had in three years. When the company reported last week, it delivered a terrific top and bottom line beat. And it's not just higher prices. Management's also aiming for record production this year. So can the stock keep climbing? Let's check in with Sean Bowley. He's Sean's the vice chairman and CEO of Agnico Eagle Mines. Get a better sense of how this company's doing, where it's headed. Mr. Boyd, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Sean. Have a seat. I am excited to see you because a couple years ago you came on and everything was crypto, crypto, crypto. And you said gold was much lower. And you said, you know what? That's fine. That's all well and good. 
but it won't last. You were the only one who said it. And you said that gold would be back as the reserve that people want. How did you know? And take a victory lap because you're the only one I know who's thinking that. Well, we knew because we get out and we talk to a lot of investors. We've got a broad range of shareholders outside of our home base in Canada, and we saw the big, smart money starting to do homework earlier, and we were just taking our cue from that. But we've learned over time that this goes in cycles, and it starts from pessimism, almost disrespect for gold. It takes a while for things to start to move. But what we saw over the last six years was goal-setting, Uh, higher lows, grinding in the face of record equity markets. And here we are, we're just getting started. Now, people need to know that it's, it's, I know this is going to sound a little oxymoronic, but it's not easy to find gold. It's not easy, and I think that's the beauty. So even if gold goes up, the industry is going to have a hard time uh, making a supply response because the lead times to build mines are extra long now but there hasn't been major discoveries industry-wide. The pipeline is not full for new deposits. But for you, you've got some, really, this uh, Meliodine mine, 3.8 million quintilla. I mean, you've got some gigantic prospects that are just now kicking in with your price of gold of, for your actual, uh, what you pull it out, really much, much below where the price of gold is now. Now, why? Because that period between 2012 and 2015, when most gold companies stopped doing business, right. we kept doing business. We were the ones that were investing in juniors, buying mines, expanding our drill programs. We made a heavy commitment to Nunavut and Canada's Arctic. And as you mentioned, we just opened Meliadine. We're about to open Amaruk um, up there in two weeks for the opening. Uh, so our production profile continues to grow. Record production. Now, this, this Meliadine just opened in May. That's not even in the numbers yet, right? It's in May. We hit commercial production mid-May. So we've only got about six weeks in our Q2 numbers. So we're ramping up that mine. We'll open up Amaruk and Nunavut as well uh, in August, hit commercial production probably late September. Uh, That will impact this year. We'll set record uh, gold production, but then we can continue to grow, but grow at a steady pace. It's all about managing risk in this business because you're dealing with nature. Nature can throw you curveballs. You've got to be careful. But you also manage risk the way others don't. Every single place that you have mines, I don't mind living at. And I mean that seriously, that you have no political risk. None that's, of these that's by design. When right. I was hired by the founder in 1985, as I said before, he said we don't go where they don't wear overcoats in the winter. We manage that risk, and mining's hard enough, and that's right. what we say. <laughs> when you start layering on other risks, it just gets much more difficult. Well, it seems like you also embrace technology. In, in this, you talk about autonomous mining. What is that? Well, that's the way of the future. That's when you get vehicles and equipment uh, running on their own. And uh, that makes the mine safer. It makes it more efficient. It keeps the cost down. We're mining right now at a mine uh, about 500 kilometers north of Montreal. We're down below three kilometers. Um, So as we go deeper, some of our best uh, drill holes are below three kilometers. That mine's been running since 1988. So that's where we're working on autonomous equipment to make it safer, but also more productive. As okay, that's important because I know the Caterpillar was telling me about that, and I didn't know whether it's actual, it, you know, that it's, whether it's test pilot or whether someone's really using it. We're you testing guys are there. It. Yeah, okay. we're testing it now, but what we do is we run those uh, mobile equipments remotely from the surface now, um, and between the 
um, the shift change, mm -hmm. where we're down without that equipment running for an hour, we can keep that equipment moving much more productive in an underground mine. Okay, now, one of the reasons people always say to me, Jim, you know, you like these stocks, and you're a growth stock. Well, let's say, well, there's these outages that, that occur, and nobody's ready for them, or it turns out that the ore isn't as good. I mean, I know that at various times, you've had to, you've had, uh, you had a mine down for what, for 60, 70 days? But that's, yes. with your pastiche of mines, it's never going to hurt your quarter. Well, I think that's the key, is you run it like a portfolio. Right. And right. Uh, you ensure that you set expectations so that you can deliver. And you, as we said, you're dealing with nature. And the mine you referred to, we had some instability issues. We right. closed it, but we didn't give up. That mine, uh, we're mining 1.6 grams of gold-grade underground, one of the lowest-grade underground mines in the world, and we're making good profit. That mine had a record quarter. So we reopened it after those issues. We stayed away from that area. But it's about your technical skill, but it's also about understanding risks. But it's right. also about thinking long-term. It's a long-term business. You have to make the investments when others are not making them during those periods when gold's quiet. Okay, now, on Wednesday, the Fed is going to pronounce uh, a cut, I believe. And one of the reasons why Jay Powell will do that is because inflation's running below the Fed's target. Is it not... Uh, is it uncharacteristic to have inflation below a target and gold soaring here? Uh, well, I think, yes, it is. But I think what we see now is we see negative real interest rates. So we see a substantial amount of money that's paying a negative return. And, and what we're hearing in the last few weeks from our connections in Europe, the gold funds are getting inflows. It right. starts there. They understand gold. They understand risks. Um, so we're in a period now where gold blossoms. When you have low real interest rates and negative, gold does well. And then the inability of the industry to respond to a higher gold price is, I think, the key to get it going forward. We also have a situation now where um, we've been grinding for six years. Mm -hmm. We've built the base. It's broke through that technical resistance at 1360. It's starting from a higher base. Right it will hit the all-time highs of 1900 to 2000 because we're starting from a higher base right. than we did back in the late 90s. Well, you've been dead right on this, and a lot of people doubted you when you came on, and not me. Gold should be part of everybody's portfolio. That's Sean Boyd, the vice chairman and CEO of Agnico Eagle, the growth gold mine company. Mad Money's back in It is time! It's time for the lightning round! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski! Dad, over the lightning round because we're going to start with Larry in Virginia. Larry! Booyah, Jim. First time caller, long time listener. Your thoughts on Newmont Gold Court? We don't want Newmont. We want Agnico. Okay, Agnico is better, faster growing, better assets. Leon in Louisiana. Leon, how you doing, Jim? I want to give you a big booyah. Everybody call me the Wall Street Trap. I love what you're doing on here. My question is about Dollar Tree. Uh, with Dollar Tree, with J.P. Morgan Chase and a lot of other analysts saying we may have a downturn coming on a sell-off, I would like to know, do you think Dollar Tree still would be a good uh, no, way to go? I think you buy some Dollar Tree and they're remaking even my own family dollar into a Dollar Tree at last. The other Dollar Tree that I had to go to is way out of my way. Joe in New Jersey. Joe! Hello, Kramer! Joe! 
Yeah. Uh, some time ago, you recommended Valley National Bank. Yeah. Should I still hold it here, or should I uh, let it go? No, Valley's got a great footprint. It's just the problem is the Fed's yeah, it was was not going the right way. But I think this thing at eleven with a four percent yield. Bye 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 bye. Gary in Florida, Gary. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah, Gary. Um, I'm retired, living in Florida, Jim, and my wife loves a good dividend. And we're looking at Abbey V and wonder if there's still downside risk on this stock. We know nobody likes the acquisition. Tell me what to do. Uh, I don't like the acquisition. And, and a 6.3% yield. A lot of these stocks that are yielding 6 and plus are stocks that have no growth. We're growth buyers. I don't see the growth opportunity in Abbey even with that acquisition. I'm sorry. I wish I believed. Let's go to Mark in yeah. Pennsylvania. Mark! Hey, Jim. Mark from Pittsburgh, PA. Booyah. Booyah. New investor. What do you think of SIX? I like SIX. I like the yield. It's got some decent growth. I think it's making a comeback. I'm going to stall for a little bit. I'm willing to bring out, yes, the terrible towel to say yes to six. Okay, let's go to John in Texas. John. Booyah, Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. I love the show. My question for you today is ticker DXC. DXC does not have growth, and that's what I'm looking for. If you're going to be in DXC, I suggest swap. I, I know what? I'd swap out of that and just go into IBM. Well, I believe that Jim Whiters is changing the culture, and that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. the stock of a gigantic $120 billion company like Starbucks managed to rally nearly 9% in a single session like it did on Friday. Normally, you only get that kind of move when there's a takeover bid. But Starbucks made it happen simply by reporting some spectacular numbers. It was truly a tour de force quarter. How'd they do it? Okay, to get your head around this story, we need to go back here to the quarter Starbucks posted 12 months ago, the one they just lapped. A year ago, the company gave you some truly not-so-hot numbers. Same-store sales grew by just 1%. In China, their biggest growth market was down an astounding 2%. It was enough to make you feel that this once great company's best days were indeed behind them. At the time, I had just done a shoot at Bluestone Lane. That's a small, privately held coffee shop chain with its irrepressible founder and CEO, Nicholas Stone. We shot the segment of their brand-new, gorgeous Upper East Side story in commemoration of their fifth year in the coffee business. Nick and I spent a lot of time talking about analogies between the beer industry, where the old-time brewers were in decline, eclipsed by smaller, faster-growing craft breweries, and coffee shop space, Starbucks versus Bluestone. The interview was simultaneously a high-five, chest-bumping affair for craft coffee, and yes, indeed, a funeral dirge for Starbucks. But man, Starbucks did not get the memo. At the exact same time that the coffee colossus was supposed to be dead and buried, then-rookie CEO Kevin Johnson was making moves under the rubric of growth at scale that would ultimately allow him to deliver the breathtaking numbers we saw last week. First and foremost, Johnson was his own man. You can't envy anyone who comes in on the heels of the now-retired founder, Howard Schultz. Within the industry, Schultz is a revered figure. Who knew how his former minions would respond to a quiet, low-key, almost anonymous successor like Johnson, especially one who came in from tech, from telco tech? I mean, 
the obituaries for Starbucks practically wrote themselves when a Juniper executive took over. But Johnson had a few cards up his sleeve. In the spring of 2018, he offloaded the company's consumer packaged goods division to Nestle for $7.15 billion, then used the proceeds for one of the largest, most aggressive buybacks I have ever seen in my career. When Starbucks reported those subpar sales a year ago and the stock got hammered, Johnson unleashed that buyback on the bears. The stock was so heavy that I worried that the buyback would have no impact initially. But Johnson didn't care. You know why? Because he was hatching a comeback fueled by technology and convenience. And that's why Starbucks brought in a CEO from tech, from Juniper, of all places. KJ, as he's known on the street, recognized that if he could improve digital ordering, if he could solve the throughput problem, if he could make delivery happen, he could then orchestrate a magnificent turnaround, regardless of what the competition was up to. Oh, and it didn't hurt that Starbucks also rolled out some terrific new products across the day, like uh, about the specialized coffees and, yes, Nitro, which is a millennial, sorry, and a Gen Z favorite. I know many doubted Johnson at the time. I didn't. I believed him, though, because I loved him at Juniper and because he explained that the real issues plaguing Starbucks had to do with making the stores more convenient and hospitable. They had a kind of Yogi Berra problem, as in nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Johnson rolled out all sorts of new technology to make it easier for you to buy his coffee. The result? It all came together. Crisp delivery, better throughput, faster lines, all with the same personalization we're used to from Starbucks. The company delivered 7% U.S. same-store sales growth, and two of those points came from digitization. Plus that addition of the night show iced coffee, it did reignite the sleepy afternoon day part. That's big money. And it brought in more traffic here every year. Oh, and Bluestone, look, I think there's more than enough room for the Bluestones of the world and for Starbucks. And everyone else in the coffee business, for that matter, the artisanal coffee versus corporate coffee setup, always a false dichotomy. Starbucks just needed better technology to orchestrate a fantastic global same-store sales acceleration from 1% to 6% in a single year. Fortunately, Starbucks brought in a tech guy as its CEO, and he has delivered. And you know what? Even after this move with Kevin Johnson at the helm, I think the stock's got more room to run, although it did get downgraded by a couple of firms today. Uh, After it settles down, I would take the other side of those sellers. Stick with Kramer. All right, Beyond Meat does a secondary, and the stock falls. Well, it's about time. Let it come in. You do not need it to be hurry up when it comes to Beyond Meat. I'd like to say there's always a market somewhere, and I promise you i to find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.